Father, thank you for allowing us to gather here to worship you. And what a truth we just sang about, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul after you. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before the Lord? Lord, I pray that we would walk out of here thirsting for more of you. And I would pray, Father, that those here who've never tasted in salvation and seen that the Lord is good, that you would grant a heart of flesh that beats after you, longs for you, wants to know you and grow more in you. Lord, I have prepared as hard as I know how, but unless your spirit breathes, this will just be an empty time. So Lord, I, I ask that you would hit delete on everything I've thought that I maybe should say and ought not to, and then pour out your wisdom and your spirit that I might say anything that I haven't even thought about to say. We long for you, Lord. We want to see you. We want to know you more. We want our hearts to be changed by you, Lord. We don't want to play church. We don't want dead religion. We want to know the power of the gospel in a fresh way and a deep thirst for you. So, Lord, please help us all to that end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Two battery. Oh, here. You want to just do that right now? Oh, thank you. I must really look like I'm in need right now. There's like... Oh, thank you. Thank you. My name's Mike, one of the pastors here. In case there's any new faces uh, gathered online, uh, I pastor here along with Charles and Cleet. And we also have Nick in the Apprentice Pipeline, and he will be going through, Lord willing, ordination this coming May, I believe it is. So really excited about that. We're in a series going through the Beatitudes. So if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, please open up to Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to continue our march through these Beatitudes in a series we've called Life in the Kingdom, because they describe how it is those who have been born again into God's kingdom as kingdom citizens ought to live, the kind of kingdom character we ought to embrace, pursue, and reflect. Today, we come to the fourth Beatitude, Matthew 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, I think it's important. I think it's a lost discipline, but I think it is very important for Christians to hide God's word in their heart. So I've been asking us to try and at least make a stab at memorizing these eight Beatitudes together. So let's start with verse 3 and see if we can get a running start. It goes like this, and you can say it aloud if you haven't memorized, or you can read it from your Bible. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Let me, actually, let me stop there. 
Um, last week I preached on that. What is meekness? Gentleness, which is what? Power under control. Well, last week in my sermon, I used an illustration having to do with a show called The Thousand Pound Sisters. Do you remember that? Well, someone that I love very dearly, and I'm saying this in all sincerity, in love said, you know, I'm not sure if that illustration, at least the side comment and the spirit in which you used it, was in keeping with being gentle, power under control. And you know what? I agree with this dear, dear person who you might know who it is, but I won't say her name exactly. Um, I don't know that it was sin, but I think it wasn't helpful. Um, and I'm not worried about a shock, the shock uh, factor as a pastor. Sometimes people need to be shocked, but we kind of need to make sure it's the spirit and not just a ha-ha side comment, humor for humor's sake rather than humor for gospel's sake. So I just kind of want to own that. Now, the carnal ones here are saying, man, I need to go listen to that message then. Well, whatever it takes, right? Whatever it takes. But I have been preaching for uh, 20 years, two decades, and I don't ever want to get comfortable and forget what the purpose of this is, to exalt Christ and no one else. So throw my heart on that, and I appreciated that, that insight on that particular illustration and side comment. Because I do hunger and thirst after righteousness, I want to receive that, and I want to grow. And that's what this series is all about, growing. Growing. These are not isolated beatitudes. Beatitude number one, poor in spirit, means I get it. I really understand my spiritual destitution so that I move forward in spiritual desperation, moving from a posture of self-reliance to God-dependence. As I do that, I'm freed up to truly repent. Should Christians repent? In a sense, only Christians really can repent, right? Not a legalistic repentance, but a repentance that understands in our head, that was wrong, sin, and my heart feels the weight of it. With my head, my hands, my feet, turn away from it, and then I turn to the cross because repentance is a gift of grace. It helps us lay hold of all that the gospel is for us. And then last week, again, the gentleness, which I did not meet the bar with that. For that, I apologize. Power under control. Man, that's a biggie. Now, when all that happens, God begins to create a new appetite in you, a new hunger. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Again, I am not going to sacrifice clarity on the altar of creativity. We're just going to march through this beatitude as we have the others. We're going to answer the question here, what does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? We're going to ask the question, what does it mean shall be satisfied? And then I have to have a wild card point having to do with changing your diet. So let's begin. What does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? I guess we ought to dial in first on the expression hunger and thirst. I don't think in 21st century America, where most of us, I think I'm sure all of us, I could say that with confidence, 
can go to your kitchen at any time, turn the faucet, get a drink of water, probably a number of other sinks in your house, have a refrigerator. You can avail yourself of every opportunity. You can do it during the advertisement time, during the Super Bowl. Anytime you want, you can go and you can eat and you can drink. I don't think the expression hunger and thirst for righteousness resonates with us in 21st century America like it would of a first century Palestinian or perhaps something in the third world today. When he says hunger and thirst, he's not talking like, you know, I just need a little bit of a snack. He is talking about an intense, raging desire. A few of you might remember that about six or seven years ago, we decided as a church that we were going to begin the year with a four-day fast. Does anybody remember that? I haven't done many, too many four-day four fasts in my life, and a lot of people at church actually did it. Do you remember how voraciously hungry you were if you did that? It, there was an intense desire for food. And if you remember, what was worse is we actually had a soup dinner halfway through it just to help us. Man, that made Thursday and Friday all the worse, putting a little food on that empty stomach. He's talking about that kind of hunger and thirst for righteousness. At the first church I served on staff at, I remember the, the, the senior pastor giving this illustration, which I cannot believe this is a real illustration. I think it's, I think it's fiction, but it does illustrate the point. The story goes like this. There, there, there's a more mature, older Christian guy discipling a younger guy. And one day they're on a walk going through the country. It's a hot day. Uh, they bend down at a stream to take a drink of water from that stream. And as they are lapping water to refresh themselves out of that stream, the older Christian takes the younger Christian and holds his head underwater firmly. And the guy's thrashing about, trying to bring his head up, holds him underwater for like 30, 45 seconds, whatever, finally brings him up above water. Uh, no, but he might have done that knowing John the Baptist, right? And the guy says to the older Christian, what in the world are you doing? And he says, you got a hunger and thirst for righteousness like that, the way you are gasping after air as if your life depended on it. No, I don't think that really happened. I wouldn't advise that if you're discipling somebody, but I think it, it does illustrate the intensity of desire that, that, that is inside that expression, hungering and thirsting after righteousness. So you all with me? When he says hungry and thirsty, he ain't looking, talking about just kind of mildly needing a snack. He's talking about a voracious, intense desire. Okay, so... What is this righteousness thing that we are then to have an intense desire for? A lot of different potential answers to that. Sometimes people will say, I've heard people say this, you will be satisfied if you have a really incredible, righteous, supernatural encounter with God. And they will say, what you need to experience is one of the supernatural gifts of God, and then you will be satisfied. Now, is God still pouring out supernatural gifts? 1 Corinthians 12, 31 tells us, yeah, we ought to pursue them. That's not the question. It just The point is, that's not what that's saying right there. And probably more commonly, I have heard people say, or people more excited about hearing about some dream or vision 
or prophecy, and they spend more time trying to exegete that thing than they do the actual word of God. They become much more animated about getting a revelation than reading the inscribed, inspired revelation of God in these books of Scripture. Now, the reality is, I'm just here to tell you, most of those dreams and prophecy visions are not of God. But even the ones that are, and some are, none of them carry the weight and the freight of the word of the living God to satisfy your soul. So it's not that. It's also not talking about kind of a generic righteousness, a generic morality. He's not saying, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for not doing wrong and making sure they do right in a way that virtually every human religion would talk about right and wrong. He's not talking about that. When he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, you must always think of righteousness in connection to the almighty righteous one, God himself. God is the righteousness, the benchmark of righteousness. So when he is saying, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, he's really saying this, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for being right with the righteous one, for being right with God. And I would just put it kind of, I would put it this way, hungering to know this God, and if you know him, to know him even more, and hungering as you know him more to grow in him more. And I think I got some scripture for that. Let scripture always interpret scripture. Psalm 43, verse 1. We sang it. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul after you, O God. My soul thirsts for God. My soul thirsts for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? What's he talking about? Knowing him even more, right? Hungering and thirsting after the righteous one. Knowing him more. If you were to go, that's, that's a, a psalm written by the sons of Asaph. Here's another one, Psalm 63, verses 1 and 2. Oh God, you are my God. Is God your God? Is God your God? Is the living God your God? Are you his child? Well, then this will resonate with you. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a drier and weary land where there is no water. What is he doing? He's hungering to know God more and to grow in God more. So we got Psalm 43, verses 1 and 2. We got Psalm 63, verse 1. Let me give you one more. Philippians 3, I think it's verse 10. Paul says, that I might know him. We're talking about growing and knowing him. The power of his resurrection, anybody know the next phrase? It's not quite as popular. And the fellowship of his sufferings. Paul says, I want to know you. The power of your resurrection and the fellowship of your suffering. To which somebody says, well, wait a second. Duh. Paul already knew God. First of all, he had a pretty crazy conversion experience on the road to Damascus, right? Speaking of spiritual gifts, he had them. He wished that other people had them like he had them, he says. He's actually caught up in the third heaven. That's some kind of real vision. He planted tons of churches. 
He wrote a good part of the New Testament by the power of the Holy Spirit. He ministered to tons of people. And yet he can say that I might know him. Yes, after all that, he was still hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Do you see that? Which is why I think, by the way, though he is now, as he, as he wrote those words, incarcerated for the faith and says, you know what, I'm still good. I wouldn't choose this, but you know what? I've learned to be content in every situation because God is my refuge. So when we say, when we're trying to figure out this particular beatitude, beatitude number four, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, how could we, we summarize it? How could we shoebox it? It would be like this. An intense desire to know God more and to grow in God more. An intense desire to know God more and to grow in God more. Now, of course, I don't think, I don't think Matthew 5, 6, is, he's trying to get to technical stuff like justification and all that. But I would say this. To know him, I don't know who needs to hear this, it does begin with understanding, well, I'm actually patently unrighteous. Isaiah 64, 6 says that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. So a desire to know him begins with a desire for forgiveness, a desire for rescue, a, a desire for redemption, a desire for life in him. And this is where the gospel comes in. Jesus died and was buried and rose again so that we could be, here's the word, justification, declared righteous. For God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in turn we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is the beautiful exchange of the gospel. I trade my rags for the riches and robes of his imputed righteousness. The old song says, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. This is where a relationship with God begins. But Christ did not just die so that we could be declared righteous. There's something supernatural that takes place also inside of you at the new birth, where he puts in you his spirit, so now you not only are declared righteous, you desire to pursue righteousness. You now want to live out who you now are in Christ by virtue of the new birth. And I've got scripture for that. And that he died for all. That those who died, 2 Corinthians 5, should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for their sake and was raised again. And probably even more directly to the point that Jesus not only died to declare us righteous, but so that we would desire and walk out righteousness. 1 Peter 2 and verse 24 that he, Peter writes, he himself bore our sins on the tree, now here it is, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So all that to say this, if I can quote 
Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He said on the basis of this truth that there is no greater litmus test for the reality of your faith, in other words, whether you really are a Christian, then the answer to this question, do you hunger and thirst after righteousness? Do you have an intense desire to know him more and grow in him more? Cadavers don't eat. Don't give me that zombie thing, okay? <laughs> Dead people don't eat. You got to be made alive in Christ to desire to eat the milk of the word, the meat of the word, to drink the milk of the word. Colin Smith, I've quoted him every other sermon. Let me do it again. He said that a distinct mark of a genuine Christian is a hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Not, you know, I prayed this prayer 20 years ago and I'm good. Not, I accepted Jesus Christ into my life two years ago, but yeah, it's not really anything big to me right now. No, no. Hungering, I-N-G, right? It's happening right now. And thirsting for righteousness. And these things are themselves a blessing apart from the blessing he promises. Because you know what, you know what hungering and thirsting for God proves about you? That you're a child of God. Because again, again, cadavers don't eat. You're alive. And this particular test of faith is really hard to fake. You can be coached up how to say the right things theologically, right? Even the devil believes and trembles, right? But it's hard to fake an orientation, a new orientation. It's hard to fake a new trajectory of your life. Because what we're talking about here is not a one-time in the rear view decision, but an ongoing direction. Which means we avoid arrogant passivity. I've gone as far as I want to with go. I'm good for now. Sit on, rest on your laurels. And it also gets in the way of what I would call a sinful complacency. Hey, I prayed that prayer. I've got Jesus in my life, but I don't want to go any further. I don't even have to. No, no. Jesus died so that we would be declared righteous and then walk out that righteousness as we desire it more and more and more. So, ending point one. How do you square up with this test of faith? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Do you have an intense desire to know God more and grow in God more? You say, absolutely. Awesome. Awesome. Now, it's easy to give cloud bank answers, but let's bring it down to the shoe leather. What are you actually doing to put yourself in the way of eating and drinking? How are you taking advantage of and creating eating and drinking opportunities? Y'all with me? You know, the Bible, you're getting into the Word. Are you reading about other saints before us who hungered and thirsted for righteousness through the struggles of life? Do you desire to come together for a worship service, for example? Now, I want to press into that a little bit more in a few minutes.
But let me move on to the second part of this beatitude. What does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? An intense desire to know and grow. Know him more and grow more. Grow in him more. Now, what does it mean shall be satisfied? This is crazy. You know what it means? You got you to like you parse the Greek to figure this out. No, you don't. It just says shall be That's what it means. Shall be satisfied. Literally, the, the expression is shall be filled. Same expression used of cattle being fattened in their stalls. Same expression, as a matter of fact, used when Jesus miraculously multiplied the loaves and the fish and the people ate until they were filled, satisfied. What's packed in emotively to this expression is the kind of feeling you have after you have your favorite meal. 25-ounce Delmonico, all the sides, and maybe a marble cheesecake. Oh, that was good. Oh, that was fulfilling. That was satisfying. That's kind of the idea there. Only this is paradoxical because when you have your 25-ounce Delmonico or whatever it is is your thing, after you hunger and thirst for that food and drink, and after you eat and drink of that food and drink, well, what happens to your appetite? It's gone. Now, you might conceptually say, I would like that again in the future. But sometimes we can eat so much, like the last thing we want to think about is eating that, right? Because we overdo it. The paradox with this is this. As you hunger and thirst and eat and drink and are filled up, as you're filled up, from what this text says, you're actually going to hunger and thirst more. Therefore, you're going to eat and drink more, and then you're going to be more satisfied, and you have this synergistic cycle that happens. And that is why this particular beatitude is the key to unstoppable growth in your life. Well, it is with a child. You know how hungry our kids are. Seems like every month you got to raise that pencil mark in the door going into the kitchen as you measure their height. Like, dude, you just grew an inch and a half in three days. Small exaggeration. Because they're just eating. They're hungering and they're eating and they're hungering and eating and they're hungering and eating. What do they just keep on doing? Growing. And that's not just true in the physical realm because, well, after all, we're all children of God, right? If you're in Christ. And therefore, whether you're 89 years old and 64 years in the faith or 64 seconds in the faith, every one of us can get into that unstoppable cycle of growth by hungering and thirsting and eating and drinking the righteousness of God. How's that going for you? What's that look like for you? And at the front end of that, the thing that, that should draw you to eat and drink is an unwavering conviction that God alone can ultimately satisfy the longings of your heart. He alone. And if God is not satisfying you as you eat and drink, as you intensely desire to know him more and to grow him more, I have to conclude one of three things. Let me wash you these three possibilities by you. The first thing we could, conclude, we could conclude is this. God is just not satisfying. 
which is quite a thing, 400, for maybe a 220-pound or 120-pound or 115-pound collection of hydrogen and, you know, uh, calcium and phosphorus and, and, and about eight or nine other minerals to say to the one who put those minerals together and those elements together to create you. And about, I don't know, six or seven million others on this massive planet that he spoke into existence, which is actually a tiny speck in the midst of innumerable planets and stars and all the rest in the midst of an infinite universe, if not universes. That's quite a thing to say about him. You're just not that satisfying. I don't think I'm going to go with that one. Maybe you can. I'm not going with that one. So if I'm not being satisfied in God, I don't think it's that. Do you? God's just not satisfying? The second thing it could be is this. You're not actually hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Oh, you're hungering and you're thirsting, all right. You have intense desires. It just doesn't happen to be for knowing God more and growing in him more. And what's easy to happen is to think that you're actually going after righteousness, but you're actually going after your happiness. It is, after all, the pitfall of humanity. But it's not just the pitfall of humanity. It's easy to Christians to fall into that pit, right? We think we're pursuing righteousness, but instead we're actually nearsightedly pursuing our happiness. I say nearsightedly because when you pursue righteousness, you're actually really pursuing your happiness. But maybe I'll come back to that. A lot of Christians think that they're pursuing righteousness when, in fact, they're really pursuing their happiness. Their thinking goes like this. This my life is hard, or it's not fulfilling, or it's this void, or you experience some calamity, whatever the case may be. And there's this pain that you're experiencing or this emptiness that you're experiencing. So then what you do is this. You say, you know what? If I can deal with that pain or that emptiness, then I will be happy. And so Christians, just like the rest of the world, we start figuring out ways, either in red light district kind of ways or respectable kind of ways, to numb that pain so that we can attain that elusive happiness. And the sad thing is masking the pain with a bunch of different things does short-term work, right? But usually quite destructively because it actually blinds you from going to the underlying cause and condition. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones again, he was a medical doctor. He said, there is not a good doctor on the face of the earth who would only deal with his patient's symptoms and not the underlying cause. That would not be a good doctor. He went on to say that pain is actually a wonderful symptom that can direct us to what the real issue is. Well, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said as a pastor later, he said, if you pursue your happiness more than righteousness, you will end up far more miserable. I think there's something to that. John Piper has a very appropriate quote along these lines. God has put eternity in our hearts, and we have an inconsolable longing. 
We try to satisfy it with scenic vacations, accomplishments of creativity, stunning cinematic productions, sexual exploits, national sports extravaganzas, hallucinogenic drugs, ascetic rigors, managerial excellence, tanning salons, and new toys, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the longing remains. Because none of that stuff can ultimately really scratch that itch. I don't know who said this, but they said, choose your thirst wisely. Because it will either lead you to freedom or to greater slavery. St. Augustine said, our hearts find no rest until they find their rest in God. And unfortunately for a lot of us, it takes a lot of unrest a lot of looking for love in all the wrong places to finally say, what am I doing drinking out of these broken cisterns when I could drink of the living water? So the second thing it could be is that the reason God is not satisfying is because you're not actually hungering and thirsting after knowing him and growing in him more. You're hungering and thirsting, but not for that. Now, the third possibility is this. You have the right focus. You are hungering and thirsting after righteousness but there's no force to your hungering and thirsting. You just kind of want to snack off of God every once in a while when it's convenient. You're really not ravenous for him. There is no real deep craving, deep, blood deep, bone deep, craving to know him more and to grow in him more. And our verse says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I would not be a faithful pastor if I didn't present this possibility. If you have absolutely zero desire to know God more and grow him in him more, you might want to reflect on whether you really have come to know him in salvation. I'm not, I'm not trying to make anybody feel bad or anything like that, okay? But I'm, I'm just trying to present that, right? Like cadavers don't eat. Living people do. And if you don't have any desire for God, maybe you're still dead in trespasses and sins. But it also could be, as it is with all of us, all of us at some point in our life, that we really are Christians, but we have let our love for the Lord become, as it says in Revelation, Jesus said this, lukewarm. We have stopped eating and feeding. The truth is, a lost person cannot create a hunger for God, but a Christian can kill or cultivate her or his appetite for God. You can't create that hunger, but you are responsible for what you do with that new, new birth appetite. You can kill it or you can cultivate it. So here's, here's the wild card point. Maybe you need to change your diet. Are you, now let me put it this way. Do you see reading your Bible or reading books about other people who hungered and thirsted after God? Do you see discipleship, you know, meeting with people for discipleship? Do you see worship? Do you see, hey, I need to, I really want to think about God in all of life every day, even when I'm doing whatever, like William, uh, you know, Carrie said, while I'm making shoes. Do you see all of that sort of like broccoli florets? something that you got to eat just because you got to eat is kind of healthy, you know, florets, you know. 
you pinch your nose and you dutifully get it down because it's healthy. And you just get it out of the way until you get out, you can get to the good stuff that you're really hungry and thirsty for. How do you see that stuff? The story is told, and this story has been told a thousand times, where a gentleman has a heart attack. They save him. He goes through some procedures. He's on the road to healing. His doctor comes to meet him in, in, in the hospital room, and he says, hey, we got to change your diet. What do you eat? He says, oh, I'm eating all the food groups, you know, chili dogs and cheeseburgers and corn dogs and ice cream and French fries and cheeseburgers and all, all that. He says, those days are over, baby. You need to start eating baked fish, baked chicken, vegetables, brown rice, stuff like that. And the guy's like, there's no way. That sounds like purgatory. I don't even believe in purgatory, but there is. It's that. No way. I can't do that. No way. He says, no, you got to do it, man, if you, you want to change your fitness and live, live for a while. So the guy begins to do it quite grudgingly from the onset. But a couple of months later, he's like, you know, this stuff really isn't all that bad. And then a couple months after that, he's like, wow, this actually tastes pretty good. And a few months after that, he's out. He says, you know, I'm just going to stop and get a bag of fries. And he starts to eat those fries, and it actually sours his stomach. I'm not there, okay? I'm not there. I had some fries yesterday. But it begins to sour his stomach. He says, I don't even have a taste for this anymore. It doesn't even taste that good. He changed his diet, and he changed his appetite by doing that. And maybe that's what some of us here need to do. Maybe we need to get off some junk food that's killing our appetite for God. And of course, what happens is, as he did that, he, he grew physically, right? Physically in shape. How, you get the analogy, right? As we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we start to look more like Jesus. We have greater spiritual heart health. And so I want to I, I close by pressing into one example of how you may need to change your diet. One example of how you may need to change, one of many examples, I'm just going to go one because it's one that's on the elders' hearts. It's something that we talked about, and we have an elder meeting every Monday, and we talked about this. One way that maybe some people who call Restore Home may need to change their spiritual diet. Let me begin here. One of the gentlemen actually is going through some job interviews. Some of those job interviews are online. Actually, all of them are at this point. Now, it's very convenient, those online interviews, but I asked him this question, but what do you think is better? What would you say is better? You're going for a job, an online interview, or in person? What would you say? Well, why? Why would you say in person? Well, there's eye contact, right? There's connectivity. You can read the body language, and all the nuances and intangibles, you have a greater chance to hear from that person and for them to hear from you. The greater connection. Teachers say the same thing. You talk to a teacher, they already are underpaid. They should pay them five times what they're making just for doing hybrid or online stuff. They are pulling their hair out, trying to keep the kids' attention and teach them effectively and all the rest. It's just a challenge. Now listen, if that's true for a job interview... And that's true for teaching children. How much more do you think that might be true 
for us who worship the living God, gathering as the church for worship. I, 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 am, I am glad for online worship, okay? It's, it's awkward for me. I'm glad for it. Something is better than nothing. I'm glad for it. And I would add, God is not bound by online worship, right? God can work, God has worked, and God will continue to work in all kinds of ways, including through streaming and recording and all the rest. But I don't think anyone here could say or, or credibly say that it's just the same as gathering physically. Would you say that? Anybody here say that? There's just, there, there's no way it is. And by the way, the word church, I mentioned it before, is ekklesia, called out assembly. The church is composed of people called out of darkness into his marvelous light. And while we're always the church, whether gathered or scattered, the, the core of that term is actually gathering together. Now, I know what you're thinking. I don't think that there's legitimate reasons not together. Do you think I'm saying that? I am not saying that. There are many legitimate reasons not to gather together physically. For one, there's persecution, right? And then, speaking of this COVID-19 season, there are, there's health conditions that somebody might have. There are age factors, to be sure. And there's also conscience. So I'm not making some kind of blanket statement. Let me just be clear on that. But I just want to do with anybody who's listening here or online right now what a local uh, principal did, a teacher, a principal of a local school did recently. Some of the students at that school are online. Since school started five months ago, some come and things have changed here and there as the scene has changed, right? We know that. But that principal, by the account I heard, offered a winsome, thoughtful, gracious, articulate, kind, compassionate, did I say winsome? All of that, email to the parents of the kids who were still at home. Just checking up. Of course, she's been checking up with them anyway, but saying, hey, I just want to talk to you about what your plans are moving forward as it relates to your child's education in person or here. We just want you to know, here are the parameters that we've had. Here's the fruit that we've seen. Here, 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 here's how we've been doing it, and we're just wondering if, if you would consider bringing your child back for in-person learning. What kind of reception do you think this principal got? What do you think? There was a degree of hostility. There were some people who were very charitable, but some people, from what I understand, were not very pleasant, maybe outraged. I don't know. That's, that's a sad thing, by the way. To live in a time when you can bring something up and people immediately will label you and assume the worst because you just bring up an issue for discussion. Now, I hope nobody listening to that is doing, listening to me is doing that with me right now or us. I don't think that's the case, but, but I do want you to hear the heart of the elders on perhaps changing your diet along this count. So there are, let me say this for a third, fourth, maybe fifth or sixth time, legitimate reasons not to gather, okay? But we just want to press in into this matter of hungering and thirsting as it relates to how and why you make your decisions either to gather and how and why you actually gather at your house if that's what you, you do. So three ifs. 
If you're not gathering as a matter of convenience, it's just easier to watch at home, then I don't know that maybe you have an intense desire to know God more and grow in Him more. If it's just a matter of convenience. Not conviction, convenience. There's, there's a brother here. He said with great humility, you know what? I just found it became very comfortable and convenient for me to stay at home. I didn't have to worry about waking up, getting the kids fed and dressed, getting the kids fed and dressed. <laughs> That's a lot, right? Getting here and, and, and it's just a lot easier. And it is easier, but it's not the same. You know, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna bring up Marie Castle, and she's like, oh no, you know. Uh, she sometimes comes in half the service through, and I, you watch it on the way there, right? So you're you're getting to the previews, right? Pre-game. and I was like, what is she doing? And then I got to know her. She's a single mom. She's got tons of challenges. How long a drive is it? Thirty minutes in good weather. And yet she is getting her kids here. What does that say about her hunger and thirsting for righteousness? That's what we're talking about right here, right? Steaks on you later, okay, for that, right? right, right, right. For the whole family, whole hand. I just want to say, if you're not gathering merely out of convenience, then I, I... Maybe you ought to ask, am I really hungry and thirsty for righteousness? Out of convenience. The second thing is, if you are doing things that have the same, roughly the same risk factor, if you're doing other things that have roughly the same risk factor as you would have gathering here, but you're not gathering here because after all, those things don't have online uh, capacities and opportunities and options, but, but we do here, then I would just again ask you, is that really reflecting a heart that is hungering and thirsting after righteousness? Because I'm glad anybody is online, but it's not going to be the same as gathering. Not to mention, I didn't even mention the fellowship interaction that we have between, between each other as the saints of God. And then I would say, if you only gather when you're serving, what does that say? Well, I'm not going to serve anymore. No, we didn't want to go that direction, okay? We did not want to go that direction anymore. I'm just saying, what does that necessarily say? What about gathering when you're serving or when you're not serving? Because I hope all of us come here thinking, I'm serving, right? I'm serving one another. Now, not gathering has the potential. I'm not saying this universally. This is not a universal indictment. So, again, please, I'm trying to just trying to give a lot of caveats. But not gathering has the potential, 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 doesn't for sure, to make you a selfish family member. We had a glorious dinner Friday night at my house. Our sous chef, pun, pun semi-intendant, Claire, Susan's understudy, made an awesome farewell meal because Ian went back to college Saturday. Butter, chicken, this special kind of rice, um, this incredible strawberry-infused cheesecake, all this stuff. 
Lots of care went into that. Hours of care, days of care, shopping and researching and the cooking itself and all of that. Diligence, love, effort, all of that. Now imagine somebody in the family says, you know what? I want to watch this television show. I'm on a call with a friend. Let me just get a plate and I'll go upstairs. That ain't happening in the Hannity household. Or I don't even want that. I'm just going to rub it through the cupboard and I'll eat on my own. Now, would you say that that would manifest a spirit of selfishness? Given all the preparation was put in so that the family would have a good meal. And I'm just posing the possibility that this season is perhaps putting a narcissistic, self-centered, a la carte Christianity on steroids. Well, I get my sermon over there. That guy really cuts the word straight. And man, the worship team over there. Yeah, I get it over there. And, 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 and I have my little accountability group, and I gather with, so I have this Bible study, and meanwhile, the thing driving that is not ecclesia, called out assembly, it's pick, choose me, pick, choose me. I, my aim, and I'm closing, is not for anyone here to violate your conscience. Okay, there, again, there are good reasons not to gather. I don't cast any aspersions on that. Age, health conditions, just your conscience. So I, I don't want anyone to violate their conscience. I'm not trying to get you to violate your conscience, but what I'm trying to do is this. To make sure that your conscience is calibrated by Scripture and not convenience, not comfort, not your colleagues, not culture, but scripture. And that we would all be convicted wherever we might need to be convicted, myself included. That there would be a consistency in how you walk out worshiping Jesus in all of your life. It says, I really have an intense desire to know my God more and to grow in my God more. David Patterfield said, Show me someone who's hungering and thirsting for righteousness, and I'll show you someone that does not need to be begged to worship God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who have an intense desire to know him more and grow in him more.